Mr. and Mrs. Coyle were married for 25 years. After several years of being separated, Mrs. Coyle filed for divorce. They had accumulated some wealth over the years, and they agreed to share this wealth evenly, 50-50. However, they did not see eye to eye on what that 50-50 split would look like. Is the law neutral, and does it serve us all equally? The Scottish Feminist Judgments Project attempts to answer these questions. Legal academics and practitioners got together to rewrite historical cases through a feminist lens. In their rewriting, the feminist judges could only use tools, laws, evidence and social understanding of the world, that could have been accessed by the judge and jury at the time of the original judgment. In the first episode, we looked at the impact of history and cultural legacies on our legal system. In the second episode, we looked at the impact of perspective-taking in legal decision-making and whose stories are told in court. In this third and final episode, we will look at a case called Coyle v. Coyle to explore whether there is a difference between the spirit of a law and the way it is applied in practice. This is the Scottish Feminist Judgments Podcast. I'm Gabrielle Blackburn. Teresa was a young woman with a promising career. She worked for British Caledonian Airways and was doing well for herself, clearly on an upward trajectory within the company. One day, she met Daniel, a young man who worked in his family's wholesale fruit and vegetable company. The two developed a relationship and fell in love. They wanted to get married, but Daniel had one condition. If Teresa wanted to be his wife, she could not pursue a career. He asked her to leave her job and abandon her career plans. Teresa accepted, and the pair got married on the 8th of February 1975. Years passed, and both dedicated countless hours to their respective fields of work. Daniel rising through the ranks of his family business, Teresa tending to the home, to their three children, and to their family life. On the 5th of February 1995, Teresa and Daniel broke up, and after five years of living apart, Teresa filed for divorce. The couple agreed for a fair share of the matrimonial property, an equal split. She would receive £560,000 as well as the family home. However, Teresa also requested further compensation under the balancing principle of Scots marital law. She wanted a settlement that recognised the care work that she had contributed to the marriage, as well as compensation for the sacrifices she had made for the marriage, namely, her career prospects. When I got to this case in the book, I was curious as to why the Scottish Feminist Judgments Project chose to tackle it. This was a story of a wealthy couple arguing over a settlement of several hundreds of thousands of pounds. It seemed to me that, whatever the outcome, Mrs. Coyle would probably be okay. So why are we focusing on her case? Jane Mayer, professor of private law and head of the law school at the University of Glasgow, rewrote Coyle v. Coyle as part of the project. I asked Jane why she chose this case in particular. 
So it was a it was a good story. I always think it's a kind of fairly classic case of what's usually called the breadwinner homemaker model. Sometimes people think it's an outdated model. I'm I'm not so sure it is. I think it happens quite a lot. A fairly classic situation where the woman gave up her career in order to care for her husband, to look after the house and the family. And at the end of that relationship, in this case a long relationship, he still had a very successful business. She had no career. To clarify the legal context, Jane explains how sharing assets during divorce is dealt with in Scotland. So um, this is all governed by the Family Law Scotland Act 1985, which starts from a very, very principled approach. So there are five principles that govern the sharing of property on divorce. The first principle is that there should be fair sharing of what's called the matrimonial property. Basically, matrimonial property is the property which is acquired by the couple during the period of marriage. Fair sharing will generally be treated as equal sharing, although it doesn't have to be. It doesn't need to be equal if there are special circumstances. In this particular case, neither party was asking for anything other than um, equal sharing. So the starting point was fair sharing of the matrimonial property, and there was really no great dispute over that, and neither party challenged it. Mr. and Mrs. Coyle agreed in principle to fair sharing. However, Mr. Coyle's business was not included in the pot of assets to be shared. And that was key. So that business was not something that was up for sharing as part of the first principle. It was not matrimonial property for various reasons. This was a family business. He had a distinct share in it, but it was something that existed before they got married and it was going to carry on after they got married. That was not matrimonial property. Mrs. Coyle felt that the business not being included in these calculations meant that this fair sharing wasn't actually fair at all. In her view, this included both the sacrifices and the contributions she had made to the marriage that in turn neglected to acknowledge her part to increasing the value of this business. To make this case, she turned to the second principle in matrimonial law. The second principle, sometimes in shorthand called the balancing principle, and basically it's there to balance where one party has suffered a disadvantage because of something they have done in the interests of the other by making a contribution in the interests of the others. And the contribution doesn't need to be a monetary contribution. It can be a contribution in terms of, for example, care, housework, caring for children, whatever. So Mrs. Coyle was trying to argue that she had suffered an economic disadvantage in the interests of her family because she'd given up her potentially very successful career in order to please her husband and look after the family. So that was the first part. But the balancing principle has two elements. And the other element is that you can argue that the other party has had an advantage because of contributions you've made. So there are kind of two separate parts to it. And she was trying to argue both. She was arguing that her husband had had the advantage in that his business had significantly increased in value during the marriage. And she was arguing that he got that advantage partly because of the contributions she had made. And the contribution she'd made basically was that she freed him up to focus on his business because she looked after all the domestic stuff. So it was really about the balancing principle, but it was about both aspects of it. Mrs. Coyle wanted these sacrifices and contributions to be recognised. 
she asked for compensation for the remaining six years she could have still been working, between the time of her divorce and her retirement, had she not abandoned her career. She also asked for 50% of the increase in the value of the business over the time they were married. It went to court um, because of that. So it's relatively unusual to go to court in the first place, but, but that's really why this one did, because it was all about this interpretation and application of the balancing principle. To decide whether Teresa should be entitled to further compensation, the judge had to take into consideration whether these sacrifices and contributions had already been compensated for during the marriage itself or through the sharing of matrimonial property. You might say that Mrs Coyle had suffered a disadvantage because she gave up work and she was no longer earning her own income and she didn't have an ongoing career. But at the same time, you might say she got a huge advantage because Mr Coyle looked after her all the time during the marriage. And that's perfectly legitimate for the court to take that into account. So you can take into account to what extent was any disadvantage already compensated during the marriage. And secondly, to what extent will any disadvantage advantage be balanced out by the sharing of the matrimonial property. And that's basically what Lady Smith said, that by sharing the matrimonial property, that was already resulting in a significant award to Mrs Coyle. She was going to keep the house. She was going to have a, a sum of money as well. And she got all of that simply by sharing the matrimonial property. And so Lady Smith's conclusion was that there was no need for any further award to be made under the second principle. Lady Smith looked at the facts before her and decided that the split as it was, was fair. Mrs Coyle was to receive the family home and a lump sum of £560,000. Mr Coyle would keep the rest, as well as his business. The judge at first instance, Lady Smith, reached, I think what was a perfectly, it was not that there was something fundamentally wrong with that judgment. I mean, the decision that she reached certainly is an outcome, a decision that could be reached within the context of the legislation. I mean, really what she said was that the fair sharing of the matrimonial property was sufficient to compensate for any disadvantage that Mrs Coyle might have suffered in the context of the marriage. You mentioned there that you don't think that there was anything fundamentally wrong with the original decision, that it's in line with the law. So why did you feel that this was a case worth revisiting from a feminist perspective? The 1985 Act, which governs this, is very clear. It's a very clearly drafted piece of legislation. It's generally very highly regarded by family lawyers in Scotland and by the courts in Scotland because it is such a clear piece of legislation. But within it, there is masses of space for discretion to be exercised and discretion is exercised all the time. But at the same time, I do think that as Scots lawyers, when they use the legislation, are perhaps not always as creative, as brave maybe, as they might be with the arguments they try to make. And so I think that discretion is exercised all the time. But in exercising discretion, you have choices about how you exercise that discretion. And so I was suggesting that there could have been a more feminist way of exercising discretion in that particular case. Jane's focus was on highlighting how judges' discretion affect legal reasoning and outcomes. She feels that the choices made in this case diverged from the spirit of the law, which is to create a fair outcome 
for both parties. For me, it was a case where care, and I'll use the word care, caring, it was all of that. It was about looking after the house, it was looking after the children, it was looking after her husband, everything that goes within that broad term of care. To me, it was a decision, it was a judgment where the place of care was not strongly enough made. Mrs Coyle's plea heavily emphasised the value of her care work. Yet this work was barely assessed or even described in the original judgment. It's too easy, I think, for lawyers and courts just to say, oh, you know, it's difficult to value care. Well, actually, we can value it. And the reason I thought it was important to do that was because in this particular case, the original judge just reached a decision that, yes, Mrs Coyle had provided excellent care over many, many years, but that was already compensated for by means of sharing the matrimonial property. And what I wanted to suggest was, well, actually, if we, if we put a market value on each of those different elements that she had provided over more than 20 years, I'm not sure that it was compensated by the share of the matrimonial property. And so that's why I concluded that she should get an additional um, payment under the balancing provision. Jane talks us through how she reached the conclusion in her judgment. So, first of all, I thought I wanted just to focus on the language. So when I read the judgment, every time that something was said about Mr. Coyle being such a hard worker, for example, it would say, you know, he worked long hours, he worked in this fruit and vegetable business, he was often up at five o'clock in the morning going to the market. It really stressed the long hours that he worked. So in a very, very kind of simple way, I went through the judgment and every time something was said about Mr. Coyle, I wanted to say something about Mrs. Coyle. So when his long hours were mentioned, I mentioned her long hours. When his, the nature of his work was mentioned, I mentioned the nature of her work. So it was, it was just in that very kind of simple linguistic storytelling, I wanted to give equal place or to try to equalise the place of what she did with what he did. That was the first thing. It was just a kind of language storytelling device. Rewriting the stories that are told in judgments, as we've seen in the two previous episodes, can have a drastic impact on the conclusions reached. Rewriting the story of the Coils in a way that emphasises both parties' labour, rather than just Mr Coils, shifts the realm of possibilities for Mrs Coyle. The second reason was to do with the way that um, things are valued because a great deal of time was taken up in the judgment looking at how certain assets would be valued and in particular there was a Ferrari involved. A great deal of time was taken up on how to value that car and yet almost no time was taken up with how to value care. So that was the second reason. So first was the place of care and just the, the extent to which it featured in the language and the narrative. The second one was how we go about valuing different assets. And, and to me, how did we go about valuing care? How did you go about doing that? And um, how did you make the space for all of this in your rewritten judgment? The first thing I did was just to try and remove the huge amount of time that was spent in that judgment on valuing the Ferrari. 
they spent a lot of time going into these complicated calculations as to the value to be placed on a Ferrari. And that was to do with the book value versus the real value or whatever. It was clear that the lawyers, the accountants, the judge were all relatively comfortable with that because they knew how to value the car. So what I did in my judgment was I made up a little bit. I said that the judge had sent the couple off to try and just sort this out themselves because we didn't want to waste valuable, expensive court time on arguing over how to value this car. So I sent them off to make an agreement on that. So we then came back to focus on what I wanted to focus on, which was the value of care. Once you'd done that, though, you had to actually place monetary value on this, right? You had to decide how much care was worth. How did you go about doing that? I didn't have a, a real solution for it. It was difficult because because you've got a choice. What do you do? Do you take a similar kind of economic approach to valuing care? Do you try and do it as a, a debit and credit? You know, do you have some sort of accounting template to try and work out what the value is. Now that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, so for me, I was trying to I was trying to get to some sort of midpoint, I suppose, uh, and saying we need to we need to begin to engage to some extent with how we value care because in that case, in the original judgment, as I think in many many judgments concerning domestic care, what tends to happen is that we just skate over it and just say oh, well, clearly you know, she was a good mother or clearly she was a good housekeeper or clearly she was a good homemaker. But we don't attempt to pick apart what that means to any extent. So in the end, my judgment was a bit of a cop out as well because I didn't really engage. I didn't try to put a value on different elements, but I did say a value could be placed on different elements. And I tried to say, OK, so so being a good homemaker, being a good wife is not just something that happens we could start to identify different elements of that. And in this particular case, I suggested that she was a cleaner, she was a cook, she was a nanny, she was a tutor, she would help with the homework, she was a gardener, she was a driver, she was a, a more general housekeeper. At times she might have been a counsellor, she might have done all of that emotional counselling, psychological care work. So I said that those different elements needed to be broken down and we needed to begin to try to identify the different elements of care because we can put a value on those. There are market values for all of those different services. In different areas of law, the courts are very comfortable with that sort of valuing. If, if it's a damages claim, if somebody is seriously injured as a result of negligence and they're not then able to care for themselves, we've got masses of case law. Lawyers have got books which will help them to identify the value that needs to be placed on each of those elements of caring that the person's no longer able to do for themselves. Although Jane calls this a cop-out, what she does here is actually very significant. Though she doesn't calculate monetary value for 20 years' worth of care work, she does demonstrate how a value could be calculated and emphasises why it is important to do so. Due to lack of precedent and the specifics of this case, she is not able to do the valuing herself, however still finds a way to compensate Mrs Coyle for her work nonetheless. In doing this, she gives credibility to Mrs Coyle's claim that her care work contributed to the increased value of this business. So, she should be compensated accordingly. In her judgment, Jane writes, At the end of a 20-year-long marriage, 
Mr. Cole has had all the emotional and physical benefits of a strong and supportive family life and has the transferable skills, business acumen and professional networks acquired through decades of devotion to paid work. At the end of the marriage, the defender has the double benefits of a family life and professional success, and he has derived that combined benefit, to a substantial extent, because of the contributions of the pursuer. It was she who gave him the freedom to develop his business and his own, highly marketable and easily transferable, business skills, by releasing him from the need to look after, in the most fundamental and unrelenting terms, his children. And she also provided him with the family life and domestic comfort to support that business development. In our liberal market economy, that is a very significant advantage, and the defender has derived it from the contributions of the pursuer. Mrs. Coyle asked for 50% of the increase in value of the business. The original judge dismissed this claim entirely. In her rewriting, Jane validates this claim, though she judges 50% to be too high. She allocates Mrs. Coyle an additional 25% instead, £100,000. She notes, however, that had Mrs. Coyle's care work been properly valued, this sum would likely have been much greater. Having ruled on the first part of the balancing principle, accounting for Mrs. Coyle's contributions, Jane turned to the second part of the principle, Mrs. Coyle's sacrifices. Mrs. Coyle had given up her career to marry Mr. Coyle, and therefore lost any of the benefits that go with this, salary, pension, professional development, and networks. She asked for the sacrifice to be accounted for, Mr. Coyle, however, disagreed. Really what he was saying was, okay, if you had such a fantastic career, actually it would have been better for me if you'd stuck with that career because you'd have been bringing in lots of money. We could have used that money to pay for childcare and other domestic services and we'd have been better off at the end of it. Now to me, there was something just so fundamentally wrong about him even making that claim because he was at the one time devaluing her contribution at the same time as he was resisting any recognition of the value of care and so to me that was a really really key part of the judgment. Lady Smith to be very fair to her did make that point and um, it was noted that that was a really bit, <laughs> a bit of, a, of, a, of a, low, a low blow that he had tried to land with that point but I thought it was really telling because it was it was the other side of that argument we can only go with what's the facts of the case you know and the facts of the case suggest that he was the one who really said to her if you want to marry me you need to give up work and then to turn around and say well actually it would have been better off if you'd if you'd carried on with your career and we'd paid for for housework and childcare. i just thought that was a, a really low point in the in the case in her judgment Jane emphasises that while the financial impact of leaving her career behind may not have been felt by Mrs Coyle during the marriage, it would be felt upon divorce without the income and pension she would have had if she hadn't left her job. To calculate this financial impact, 
Jane estimates Mrs. Quill's potential salary based on an ex-colleague's current salary, multiplying this by the number of years that she would have still been working. Finally, Jane adds the amount Mrs. Quill would have received as a pension during that time. This calculation adds an additional £480,000 to the amount due to Mrs. Coyle. In total, by re-evaluating Mrs. Coyle's contributions and sacrifices, Jane changed the lump sum that she would have been entitled to from £560,000 to £1,124,000. Almost double. I interviewed Emma Rich, CEO of Engender, a feminist policy advocacy organisation, about why analysing structures and institutions through a feminist lens is important. Most policy and law is developed around the idea of a rational economic man and men are seen to be the default humans in uh, policy and lawmaking. And that's not deliberate or intentional. It's the way that our culture and our practices have developed over time. So what Engender spends a lot of time doing is marshalling the evidence about how women's experiences and lives are different from the default and trying to encourage policymakers and legislators to think about all of those issues when they're making their policy and law and thereby bringing around better outcomes for women because they're paying attention to what women need and they're also thinking about women's equality and rights when they do their work. Emma, what stood out to you when you first read this case? I think the the squeamishness about valuing unpaid work and just how profoundly embedded that is in all kinds of matrices of gendered norms and assumptions about women's priorities. And I thought that valuing a Ferrari, where several pages were spent on valuing this Ferrari, but Mrs. Coyle's care work only got mentioned in a kind of passing comment. Uh, And I think that is so strongly rooted in this Victorian idea that persists of the angel in the hearth, self-sacrificially tending to the needs of the family, and men out there in the world living a a real life. I found it viscerally offensive on some level that uh, Mr. Coyle tried to use the argument that he didn't benefit from his marriage, but instead his wife and his children were a drag on him and his productivity and his financial well-being. Although that, again, really resonated with how mainstream economics describes the division between production and consumption, and draws a bit of a boundary around the household when it thinks about value. When I read the Feminist Judgments Project book, that really drew out the value of some of that unpaid work for me. And I found that extremely moving in some ways, just the articulation in such dispassionate prose in this form of this legal judgment, talking about how he benefited in so many ways, how he was able to focus on his work. He had a woman focused on his emotional well-being and the well-being of his children that she pointed out in her judgment that having kind of added up all the costs of the professionals that would have been needed to replace Mrs. Coyle, that there's just no way that the wages could have even covered the kind of breadth and intensity and level of skilled care that she provided. But it was really interesting to me that he and his legal team 
obviously thought that that argument would fly, that children and women are just supporting characters to a world in which men are autonomous actors. And I think we still see that as being a view that kind of peeps out when marriage and the law get written about in the media and elsewhere. Jane rewrote Coil versus Coil as a way to make a broader point about how we interpret and apply the law as it is written. In her reflective statement, Jane writes, In preparing to write my judgment, I considered various approaches. I toyed with the idea of recasting the case as an appeal to the inner house, with three judgments each exploring a different feminist perspective on the facts. The facts of this case would have lent themselves well to this approach, allowing exploration of a range of different feminist responses to homemaking and caring. The image of the successful independent woman who gives up her career at her future husband's insistence is a challenging one. Should she be compensated? Should she be vilified or possibly re-educated? Is she an autonomous agent? Is she a victim? Might we, modern-day feminists, console ourselves that it would all be different now? In the end, I decided to make no comment on the choices which this particular woman had made in the context of her personal relationship. The 1985 Act might have been designed with a particular mode of self-sufficiency to the fore, but it is very clear that it was also intended to have the flexibility to accommodate a range of relationship models. I focused on my role as a feminist judge applying the law to the facts that were presented. The 1985 Act sets out clear principles and detailed guidance, but within that statutory framework, there is space for discretion, and I chose to show how I could exercise my own feminist judgment within that space. And that was something that I found really interesting um, and difficult about the whole process, the whole judging process. And I suppose what, in the end, it came down to me thinking, well, actually, I think, I mean, I really agonised over whether what I was doing was too generous or was I being, you know, was I being unfair to Mr. Coyle? Was I just too focused on the feminist approach? Um, And in the end, I thought, maybe I don't need to agonise over it so much because I think that I've got discretion in this way And I think I'm just going to exercise my discretion in favour of of valuing care. Um, And and so I think it was saying, hopefully I was trying to say something something broader about the way that discretion is exercised. Um, And maybe women sometimes doubt themselves too much when it comes to just making those decisions. It's fine. Jane talks about her concerns that in taking a feminist approach, she was being too generous to Mrs Coyle. Is this a concern we should have? Emma discusses whether a feminist analysis risks tipping the scales too far in favour of women. So a feminist analysis doesn't privilege one sex above another. And what a feminist analysis does is it interrogates the hierarchies that are constituted and reconstituted through women's and men's experiences of the world. And you're bringing those to the surface and making those explicit in your judgment. So the judgment, for example, doesn't say that marriage shouldn't exist. Uh, It doesn't say that women should not pursue lives as homemakers. 
and uh, shun paid work, uh, which was a decision that Mrs. Coyle made, although she herself describes it as being heavily influenced by Mr. Coyle. It doesn't make a determination about those questions. What it does do is it looks at the context and, and the reality in which decisions were made by Mr. and Mrs. Coyle about their lives, and then it imputes value to the work, unpaid and paid, that was done within the household. So the feminist analysis that Jane Mayer is applying is looking at the contexts and the inequalities that marriage is soaked in, um, but it is not tearing it down. It's not saying that unpaid work should be privileged above paid work. Um, it's trying to draw something of a balance. And I think I would very much um, rebut the idea that there is a value-free set of judgments being applied at the moment. Ignoring the gendered realities is not in and of itself a neutral position. And so a feminist judgment makes those things clear uh, in, the, in, in the, that way too. You say there that you would rebut the idea that things are currently value-free. What exactly do you mean by that? I feel like there is no such thing as a neutral objective machine anywhere in the world. Even when we talk about machines and algorithms, um, there's certainly biases and perspectives and positionality baked into those. So when anyone says to me, oh, we don't need to do an equality impact assessment, this is completely neutral and will have no differential impact on women and men, I automatically disbelieve them because I think that so much of what we um, do when we when we try to consider a system to be neutral is actually adopting a profound set of androcentric biases and just naming them as the status quo. Um, so I think that uh, when I think about the law, I certainly don't think that it's neutral and I certainly don't think it's objective. Um, I think about who is a judge and who isn't a judge, who is a lawyer and who isn't a lawyer. But also I think from having worked for quite a long time in violence against women's services, uh, that it's just impossible to imagine the law as a benign neutral force that treats women and men exactly the same when you hear the day-to-day -day injustices that, that women bring and describe um, and we see in the world manifesting all around us. Da, da, da. As we've covered in previous episodes, the law isn't neutral. It is written and practiced by people who, at every step of the way, are making decisions. These decisions are based on what they think will work, based on their experience, based on what feels right, based on what feels normal. There must be a real challenge for those judges who take their feminist analysis with them onto the bench in terms of very strongly feeling that like they are um, going against a set of norms and assumptions that are just part of that everyday way that their colleagues and um, equals view the world. And so I think one of the one of the things that was written in the judgment was the real difficulty of having any kind of precedent that, that the conclusions that were drawn in this case really didn't have any forerunners and that was quite complicated to try and figure out how to do that calculation because it just seemed so out with the mainstream. 
So I guess there is a kind of normative quality to the feminist judgments uh, project, which is really helpful in that the work that has been done to produce it may provide judges and others within the legal profession who will end up being judges with a sense of how they might do their work differently in those spaces where interpretation is enabled and allowed. You've mentioned the fact that who judges are matters in getting outcomes that are fair for women. But in this circumstance, the original judge was a woman. But here she's reached a conclusion that is being analysed as not being feminist. Clearly, being a woman isn't enough. So what, what do you mean by who judges are matters? One of the things we talk about a lot at Engender when we're thinking about policymakers and lawmakers is the idea of gender competence. So it's not that you necessarily are a woman. Um, and although we do know from the evidence that having women around the table does change what is being discussed. But the idea of gender competence is that you understand the differences between men's and women's lives and you understand the role that gender specifically plays in constructing and sustaining those differences. And you're therefore able to consider whatever it is that you're doing, whatever kind of policy you're making, or in the case of judges, whatever kind of decisions you're taking uh, through that gendered analytical lens. And I do know in some other domains of law, I know that our colleagues, for example, at Rape Prices Scotland have been very successful in advocating for training for judges, which needs to be voluntary because of the way being a judge works. Um, I've certainly delivered um, judging in a legal context training on sexual harassment and sex discrimination in the workplace to employment tribunal judges. Um, so there is certainly, I think, some scope and capacity for enhancing the gender competence of judges and enabling them to consider some of the gender dimensions that we would want them to think about when they're making judgments in these types of cases. How do you see this book and this project in general uh, aligning with Engender's aims? What, do you, what are your thoughts about the types of impact that the project could have? I think as someone who is not a lawyer, but is really interested in the impact that the law has on women's lives, this book is so profoundly illuminating. So I think it, it, um, it talks about women's lives in a way that we often don't see through the snippets of other judgments and legal analysis that is out there in the world. Um, I think it has a huge potential for transformational change in that it creates a new set of norms. So one thing I was particularly struck by when I was reading Lady Mayor's reflections were that she was saying, I didn't know how to do this calculation because no one had ever tried to do this calculation before. So even the kind of act of uh, trying to figure out how one might impute value to some of the, these pieces of unpaid work creates a path that others may follow and a way of thinking about these types of decisions um, that other uh, judges or lawyers or students may read and later apply throughout their working lives, but also creates possibilities for action by imagining how the world could be different. And I think that's one of the most profound duties we're tasked for with as feminists is to try and imagine how the world could be different for women and girls.
At the beginning of the episode, Jane talks about interpreting law and the choices made within that. Jane, when you talk about exercising discretion and being, well, you talk about being brave and you also talk about being creative, these aren't necessarily terms that many lay people would immediately associate with the legal practice. Could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by them? I think lawyers are creative all the time because they're creating arguments. That's, I think, what part of being a lawyer is about. It's about creating, maybe constructing. It sounds a less um, creative, maybe sounds like they're making it up. That's not what I had in mind. Creating, constructing argument, I think, is what lawyers do. That's absolutely normal. I mean, I think sometimes to non-lawyers, there's this perception that law is just about rules and you just, you go to the book and you pick out the rule and you apply it and that's it. I mean, that's not what law is. In Scotland, in this area of of family law, I think we're really lucky because we do have such clearly drafted legislation. It's then for the lawyers, the solicitors and the advocates to use that legislation and apply it to the facts of a particular case to construct an argument. So by creativity, that's what I mean. In her reflective statement, Jane writes, In writing my judgment, I reflected frequently on the exposure of the real judge. Exposure to her peers to the legal profession, to the parties, to the possibility of appeal, to the would-be feminist judges. I was protected from such exposure and grateful for that luxury. It is easy to be a brave feminist judge within the safe space of role-play, and I offer my feminist judgment in coil, not in criticism, but in solidarity. Very conscious that care and caring, how it is given received, valued and compensated, remains a shared and complex challenge for us all. I wanted to end this series on this case because of how familiar it felt. A rich couple divorces, The wife is offered a large sum in a house, and yet still she asks for more. It conjured up familiar tropes of gold-digging wives and greedy women, only after it for the money. The way this judgment picks apart the logic that supports that view, laying bare the skewed lens that we use to think about what is fair and whose labour we take seriously, felt very fitting as a summary of the project's aims. Adjusting an amount payable to an individual on divorce, as Jane does in this case, obviously doesn't address underlying systemic issues present in the legal system. But it does show how even within a system that does not explicitly allow for the valuation of care work, the law can be creatively interpreted and applied in a way that addresses individual unfairness. Each episode in this series has presented a different type of argument. In episode one, with Drury, we highlight a need to question laws that uphold antiquated notions that are no longer relevant in today's society. In episode two, with Ruxton versus Lang, we challenge what evidence is deemed relevant and draw attention to how misrepresented narratives can lead to unfair outcomes. In this episode, with Coyle versus Coyle, we focus on the role that discretion plays in how the law is interpreted and applied which can make a huge difference in the outcome of judgments and what is deemed to be fair. All of these arguments show how the law isn't neutral and doesn't 
serve us all equally. In the book's introductory chapters, the editors write, For us, feminist judging means a commitment to telling untold stories using thick, contextualized accounts of facts and circumstances, reinterpreting precedents and statutory provisions more inclusively, and making dense, convoluted judgments more accessible. Drawing on a diverse range of knowledge, expertise and experiences to inform our decision-making, engaging deeply with the intersectional nature of gendered and other power imbalances, and, where possible and appropriate, changing the decision to better achieve a more just outcome. While some of these aims are not exclusively feminist, they are aims that we self-consciously adopted in formulating and framing our Scottish Feminist Judgments Project. This project offers a vision of an imagined reality in which alternative judgments and creative interpretation bring gender equity concerns, which are too often neglected, to the fore. We have sought to expose the power, politics and partiality of law. This episode was co-written by Gabrielle Blackburn and Amrita Luwalia McMiddis. Interviews, narration and production by Gabrielle Blackburn. We would like to thank Jane Mayer and Emma Rich for participating in these interviews. The full feminist judgment of the Coyle versus Coyle case and many others can be found in the Scottish Feminist Judgments book, edited by Sharon Cowan, Chloe Kennedy and Vanessa Monroe. The music in this episode is Absentia, written and produced by Alison Burns for this project. You can discover this and other art commissioned for the project in the virtual exhibition on the Scottish Feminist Judgments website at sfjp.law.ed.ac.uk.